Several years ago, one of my good friends invited me to attend a fight that he fought. He got us seats uh, ringside. And after the fight, by the way, when you're ringside at a fight, you get to see a lot of stuff that's just kind of manly and gross. And after the fight, he was waxing all, you know, philosophical, and he, he still had the adrenaline rush. He, he had done well that night. And he theorized to me, to write to him, look me straight in the eyes, you know, one fighter to another. Um, honestly, that's what he said. He said, you know, Robert, before you die, you need to get in the ring. Every man, every man to be a man needs to get in the ring. He said, Robert, before you die or get too old, you should do this. I said, no, no, I'm a man and I don't have to do this. Two reasons. Number one, first of all, a lot of you are aware of this, but you know, this is my moneymaker right here, right? No way I'm putting this in jeopardy. And secondly, I'm already in a fight. I'm already ringside. And sometimes I'm there. And I bet all of you will agree this morning that life itself is a fight. When Paul, who uh, wrote the letter to 2 Corinthians, he also penned a, another letter, a 2 Timothy, where he tells his young protege, Timothy, he says, I have what? I fought the good fight kept the faith, finished the course. I've, I've fought the good fight. He, he used athletic metaphors from time to time. And honestly, I, I feel like I'm in the ring. I feel like I'm getting punches. Punches sometimes to the, to the body, sometimes to this pretty face of mine, sometimes head blows, sometimes shots to the solar plexus. And Paul would say to us, he's saying in 2 Corinthians, this letter to the church at Corinth, the church that he helped plant, and then he moved on. That's what, that's what Paul would do. He spent a lot of time in a city called Corinth, a lot of time in a place called Ephesus. He was in other places less than that, Thessalonica, Berea, other places. He would go in, he would start at the Jewish synagogue. He would tell his story, he would preach, and God would do a work, and then he would stay for a while, raise up leaders and go. He'd get on ships. When Paul said, he was shipwrecked. That meant a different thing. I sat down with a young couple. I'm doing their wedding in January. And they talked about their honeymoon. They're getting on a ship. It's going to be fun, right? Nothing's going to go wrong on that ship. But when Paul got on a ship, most of the time, man, things went wrong. A lot of things went wrong. And Paul shares with us his resume. Several places we see it unfold in the book of Acts. And we hear his resume from his own letter, from his own pen, when he talks about the things that he's been through, beaten and stoned, shipwrecked. I've been flogged. On top of all that, there's the cold and the hunger. There's the snake bites. There's the, the loneliness. There's the care of all the churches. I'm in a fight. And Paul inspires us to say, be resilient. There's no doubt because my, my job to, it calls for more than preaching. I, I pastor here. I know so many of you. We're in a community group, lead a community group, interact with, with you guys. And I hear and I know that there are stories right now of some of you and a few of you I know personally who not only you're in a fight, you've been punched, you've, you've been knocked down, you're on the canvas. And like a punch drunk fighter knocked on the canvas, you're wondering if you can, if you can get back up. And that's what this series has been about. It's the series that we wrap up today called the resilient life. I want us to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 
If you want to turn there, it's in the New Testament. You know, there's the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's Acts and Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. 2nd Corinthians chapter 12, toward the back of this great letter. We're going to put it up on the screen. Yo, here it is. Oop, there it is. Here's what Paul says. We're going to read 2nd Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Paul goes third person here. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows, and I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. He heard these things that cannot be told, which, may not, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Circle that word, weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. Circle that word, thorn. Go ahead and circle that word, flesh. A messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he, God, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in, there's the word, weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with Weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. And one of the most beautiful, profound, paradoxical statements in all the Bible. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Weakness. Did you circle that word? Did you see it several times? Weakness is a big deal to Jesus. I believe that his birth was carefully crafted by the creator to show us the paradoxical power in weakness. When Jesus came, we celebrate at this time of year. When Jesus came, he wasn't born to a wealthy tycoon or a well-known socialite. He came into this world from a, from a teenage girl who didn't really have a lot going for her. He, he was born and he was destined to be raised in 10 acres of nothing known as Lazarus, Nazareth. And there he was at his birth, with parents Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph were poor. They were impoverished. They, they couldn't afford even uh, to pay for a sacrificial lamb at their child's birth that was required by Levitical law. L consider the irony. The parents of the sacrificial lamb could not afford to buy, to buy an ordinary lamb. And they offered up a cheaper alternative to birds. Weakness we see from the birth of Jesus. My wife this time of year, like a lot of women, I'm sure, in the room, uh, she uh, really values scented candles. You guys have some scented candles in your home. She, she has fragrances of the season, apple pie and cinnamon spice. And there's one I learned about uh, called, um, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Somebody that misbehaved is being beaten back there. We're going to take care of it, okay? 
I don't know what that is really. Wesley, go take care of him. You and Haddon go back there and just, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> We're talking about scented candles, right? Because this is church. You're talking sermons. You got to have some scented candles in a sermon. So, you know, there's apple pie, there's cinnamon spice, there's fragrances of the season. I even looked online and she didn't buy this, but there's a nativity scene candle. Think about that. That we cleaned that one up, didn't we? I mean, what's a, what does a nativity scene smell like? By the way, do you realize in my research for this sermon, I learned that there are mandals. Anybody want to guess what a mandal is? Scented candles for men. For real, you can get auto shop. You can get, uh, you can get my favorite slab of bacon. There's, they're, they're actually scented candles for men known as mandals. But this, this birth, this nativity-scented candle doesn't tell us the truth. I'm not exactly sure what it smells like. You can't smell it over the computer. My wife hadn't bought one. But if it smells like the nativity scene, it would smell pretty rough, wouldn't it? Here we go again, modern-day American folks cleaning up the story, right? And against the backdrop, the canvas of gray, drab, ordinary, earthenness, Jesus is born. We see strength in weakness in Jesus at his birth. Paul makes a big deal about weakness. Following his Savior, knowing his own story, he's writing to the, the church at Corinth. Well, what do we know about the city of Corinth? History tells us a lot in Scripture and extra-biblical, archaeology and artifacts and writings. We know a lot about Corinth. It was urban and cosmopolitan. It was sophisticated. It had a lot going on for it. It had wealthy people. There was a lot of self-reliance and self-indulgence. There were people who lived lavish lifestyles. There was for its day an impressive skyline and a port. It was on an isthmus that was separated by the, or separated the Aegean Sea and the Adriatic Sea. Very important with a lot of VIP, VIP folks in this city. And they loved the nightlife. They liked to boogie. And Paul writes to them. And the reason that he starts here and ends this letter with his resume is he wants to speak to them from his place of strength. You see, he knew it was going to be a hard sell for these type of folks to say, oh, there's power and weakness. That's hard to sell, isn't it? If we had a kiosk in the foyer of the commons and we said, go sign up to be involved in weakness, who would do that? We like strength. We want a strong worth ethic. We want a strong family. We want our, our teams and our schools to, to be strong. Strong is good in so many ways. But Paul is saying there is a strength that you do not know of, and it's the strength of weakness. So this is sort of a, um, this really is a tough passage, right? When, when we were reading that, were you like, did you have a furrowed brow? We're like, what's he, what's he saying there? Because there's sarcasm here, and it's like he's boasting, but he's not boasting. And who's he talking about? He's talking, not talking about himself, and then he's talking about himself. And Paul, to, make, to state it simply in just, a few, just the moments that we have together today, Paul is saying, in order to speak about weakness, I've got to start from strength. And he kind of goes in the third person. He's saying, hey, look at my resume. I've got Hebrew heritage. I've got street credibility. I've paid my dues. Here is who I am. But the strength there, it's just nothing. 
And for 14 years, he did not talk about some of the visions and the revelations and going to the third heaven. Now, let me just say this. If I got to taste some angel turf and go to third heaven, man, I would talk about it a lot, would you? I wouldn't wait 14 years to tell my friends. I would include it in every conversation. I would post it on Instagram. Went to the third heaven today. What'd you do today, right? I would, I would write a book about it. The third heaven, why God chose me and not you. There would be a movie about it. Third heaven is for real. I would talk a lot about it. I would, I would update my bio when not spending time in third heaven. Robert enjoys being with his family. I would boast about that. Paul laid low, didn't make it a part of his ministry. It wasn't, it wasn't spoken of for over 14 years. And he's saying, this is what I know. This is where I've been. This is what God has done in my life. And then he introduces this idea of power and weakness, a sufficient, sustaining grace of God not when we boast, not when we have visions and revelations, none of that stuff, but through the weakness. So I want to talk to you briefly this morning just about three things, three things that God will use in your life. We see it all throughout Paul's ministry and in this letter. And the first is, you know this, you know that God will use your strengths. He wants to. Now, we get that. We, we, we've all seen um, athletes who score a touchdown or hit a home run and they point to heaven. We see actors who, in giving acceptance speeches, will thank God. We know that God is glorified in success. Honestly, I think we put too much stock in some of those things, don't we? God will use your gifts. We're looking today, we're reading and considering a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the first letter that Paul wrote to this church at Corinth, he talks about how there is this beautiful thing called the church that God is raising up. And it's grown, it's going way beyond Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Galilee. It's, it's, it's blowing up and it's gone to places. And when it's set up, Disciples are made and leaders are raised up and people discover their gifts. Now, Christ is the head of the church. Who's the head of Fondren Church? Not me. I lead and we, I, I am led also as one of several. We form a plurality of elders. But Christ is the head of the church. And in that head, using that body, that anatomy analogy, Paul says, hey, there's feet and there's there's toes, there's, there's shoulders, and there's, there's all of the different parts of the body and the challenge for us to be a beautiful place, to be a royal priesthood, a holy people, a people set apart, a people that are compassionate and wise and beautiful and benevolent. It's for us to stay together. The gift that you have, don't, don't run off and just please yourself. Don't use it for vainglory and for yourself. Come together, come with a group of people. When I lived out west, I sort of had a vision of what God wanted to do in my life. And it, it led me to move to one of the most beautiful cities in America. And I'm glad that we did. One of our kids was born out there. And we had a few years where it was really great and glorious. But I learned all about my limits. I learned the, the limits of my entrepreneurial ability. And it humbled me as I sat in La Jolla and sipped an espresso Looked out over the Pacific Ocean watching the whales go by. Beautiful place to live, but I was in a hard place. And some of you may know this. It doesn't matter where you live. 
how beautiful it is if, if there's inner turmoil and you're missing who God has made you to be. And God was showing me, and my wife was patient, he was showing me the limits of my entrepreneurial ability. And I'm telling you, I use that to this day. I'm not a very wise person, but a lot of my wisdom comes from realizing I need you. I need other people. You don't want me to do a lot for Fondren Church. Most Sundays, you want me to keep you awake for 35 minutes, and you want our elders and leaders and all to, to apply about 2% of my ideas, right? But there are other people, other women, other men in this church whose God has gifted, and that is what he will use and what he wants to use. And we're equal. No matter your gifts, when people start discovering their gift, what happens? Boasting, or someone thinking this person is better, public gifts, visible gifts. Paul wrote about that. He said, don't, don't, let, don't, don't be ashamed of your gift and don't desire the gifts that other people have. Appreciate those gifts. Can you do that? Appreciate the gifts that other people have. God will use your strengths. Secondly, God will use your deepest dissatisfaction. For Moses, it was seeing his people being held back in slavery. He grew tired of seeing his people beaten by the Egyptians. And this, this anguish, this deep dissatisfaction that God gave him, God used to free the people. For William Wilberforce, it was slavery. And he devoted his life, his entire life, to the eradication of slavery in England. For Martin Luther King Jr., it was the enslavement and later the oppression of African-American people. He preached, he taught, he, he, he boycotted, he organized. And we have the country that we have today. There's much to credit this man and this movement in the Deep South to, because of what he did, because of this deep dissatisfaction that he had. For a man named Miller, Millard Fuller, he looked at the world and saw millions of people, especially children, who didn't have a simple, sustainable, good place to live. And he picked up a hammer and he built a home with some people and they kept building homes. And we have today what is known as Habitat for Humanity. God will use your strengths. And by the way, I just want to say there are some exciting days in the life of our church across the parking lot, there's this, this gym that is uh, going to become available for our use. And already we've got people in rooms, men and women who are praying, people that are dreaming about how it can be used, uh, how it can be used. We're having conversations with Red Door, with, with Young Life, with, our, of course, our student ministry, our very own student ministry. We're dreaming about the neighborhood in West Fondren and, and going deeper. We've had a couple of families, young families, move into West Fondren, and they're praying about how this building on our property uh, can be used. When they, I've talked to the men when they walk out. Now, I live in Fondren, but the people I live around oftentimes look at me. There's real no diversity except in age. But when these uh, families walk out of their front door right over here, they see people that don't look like them, and they see kids. They see little boys who are bored. They'll see a child holding a ball and wondering what to do. Who's going to guide them and shape and mold that life? And what an opportunity we have. And I, as I was visiting with a couple doing their pre-marriage preparation yesterday, I became aware by looking at my phone that some of our young people, some of our young professional single folks were yesterday uh, out with some of these kids at high heaven 
spending time and investing way beyond just the Tuesday night hour? What if there was a computer lab set up over there? What if we taught kids code? What if there was a care center? Acts 6 says when the church grows that problems arose because the needs weren't being met and they appointed uh, men and women who were responsible for the daily distributions of needs. I've walked by a church recently and, and it said benevolence. Thursdays from 11.30 to 1 o'clock. Don't you just want that sign to come down? Ever been hungry? Ever had a need? It's so inconvenient, and it? It doesn't just happen on Thursdays from 11.30 to 1, right? I mean, it's daily. And we're praying and dreaming, and I'm seeing some of you discover your gifts and how they can be used to serve other people. Pray, invest, be a part of what's happening and what could happen here. Use your gifts. God will use your gifts. He will use your deepest dissatisfaction. And what we're saying this morning is he will use your weaknesses. He will. Now, Paul says, backing up a bit, he says that God has given me a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that, what that is. Scholars have studied it. There have been some some good ideas. And can I just say, again, repeating what the scripture says, I just said it, God has given me a thorn in the flesh. Some of you may need to change your conception of God. God has given me a thorn in the flesh. What is that thorn? It's a, some sort of persistent pain. It's something that won't go away. Some think that it was something emotional that Paul had to deal with, a crippling emotional deficiency that brought him low from time to time. Some people think it was a person. That's easy to do, right? You got, anybody, you got any people that are thorns in your flesh, right? Some people think that it was somebody that was just bringing him down to Chinatown, somebody that was hurting the cause. Now, Paul, by the way, I don't know if I've said this in this whole series, but these letters were birthed in large part because people that were going into Corinth, into the churches, and infiltrating and seeking to sabotage his credibility and his authority and his leadership. So maybe, maybe this was one person who stood out who was a real thorn in the flesh. I want to give you my theory. I'm in good company when I share this theory, but I believe that it was something, I believe it was a physical ailment. Uh, by the way, let me just say that we're just entering into some conjecture here. Uh, we don't know for sure, and it's probably beautiful that we don't know, but it is fun to, to be speculative. And I believe that it was something with Paul's eyesight. Look, uh, if you have an open Bible, you can just turn to the next letter. It's Galatians, and turn to chapter 4. If not, I'll put it right up here. Here's what Paul said to the church at Galatia, a Roman province, very important city, across the way by Derby and Lystria. He says, as you know, it was because of an illness that I first, first preached the gospel to you. Now, that doesn't give us any insight, but it is saying that, hey, this illness that Paul had, what? It made him stick around. It, it detained him a little bit. And just as we know, Paul wrote Philippians and the, the letter to, uh, called Colossians from a prison cell. We learn here that he was detained. And because he was detained, the gospel went to people. In Galatians 4, the next few verses, and even though my illness, here, there we go, was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if, as if I were an angel of God, as if it were Christ Jesus himself. A reference to Matthew 25, how Jesus teaches us that it's really important how we treat others. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. 
Speculation. Kind of gross to think about, right? Tearing out of eyes. But Paul is just, he's, it's a beautiful expression there. And Paul, look at Galatians 6, 11. He's saying this, see what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Now, when Paul would pin these letters, he would have someone, a secretarial that would do the work for him. And Paul's saying, hey, I'm pinning this and it's a large letter. Good, maybe, to speculate that this was his thorn in the flesh. In Acts chapter 23, there's a story of Paul being taken in front of the Sanhedrin. Now remember, Paul was um, staunchly uh, a Hebrew guy, studied, was well known and versed in the Hebrew text. And it says that in, when he was in front of the Sanhedrin, in front of the high priest, that he, when the high priest said something to him, they hit him and said something to him, and he didn't know that it was the high priest. Now, Paul, if anybody would know it was a high priest, it would be Paul. So perhaps at that point, he was almost blind. Don't know it for sure, but that's my speculation. That's the thorn in the flesh. But I want to say two things about this weakness, about this thorn in the flesh. The first is everybody's got it. Everybody has got something. Turn to the person next to you, even if you don't know them. It'd be a lot more fun if you don't know them. And just look at them and say, I know you got something. That took a long time. Y'all are still talking. <laughs> I know you got something. That takes about three seconds. I, I know you got something. Everybody's got something. The retiree next door that you just learned about, he's, he does well, but he doesn't travel like other retirees travel, especially during the holidays and the Christmas season. And you just discovered that his 32-year-old son is in uh, the 10th year of serving a 25-year prison sentence. And visitation night is Thursday night of every week. That's his thing. The, the woman who cuts your hair, she has a very thick accent. And over time, you've learned that that thick accent is from Europe and her and her family fled the Bosnian crisis. She lost both of her parents and she came to a new land, to a new place where she didn't know the customs and she didn't know the language. It's hard for her. That's her thing. Your boss makes more money than you do. I mean, she's the boss. But you've learned that she's broke because she spends all of her discretionary income on treatment of her own eight-year-old daughter to discover what mental ailment is besetting her. That's her thing. A buddy in your community group, in fact, it's a community group made up of married couples, and this man is married, but his wife never comes to the group. And you learn in week two that through personal conversation with him that his wife has a chronic fatigue syndrome. She doesn't get out much. Things are very, very difficult between them and they have been for more than a dead decade with no room for improvement in sight. That's his thing. Everybody's got a thing. You got a thing. The person you just looked at and said, I know you got something. They've got a thing. If you know them, you probably know their thing. Everybody's got a thing, and everybody that's got a thing wants that thing to go away. Dear God, I beg you, I plead with you. Lord, I love you. I'll change things in my life. I'll, I'll do right things. That thing I shouldn't do, I'll stop doing it. The things that, that I should do, I'll, I'll start doing those. Lord, I, I promise, Lord, take this from me in Jesus' name, amen. Everybody 
who's got a thing wants the thing to go away. And we learn from Paul that he pleaded. In other words, that wasn't a, a multitasking prayer. Do you ever pray multitasking prayers? You're on the phone, you're vacuuming, you know, smelling your nativity scented candle, right? And then you sort of offer a prayer to Jesus, but it really wasn't, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't pleading. When I was preparing this sermon, I sat at a restaurant trying to hide from some of you, and there was a couple next to me. I got there first, and this guy was pleading with her. I mean, it was like Justin Bieber's song to Selena Gomez. Like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm sorry. And there was a pleading there. Well, this prayer of Paul was a pleading prayer. It was a fervent prayer. But I do not know. I've studied it years ago. I studied it again this week. I don't know if it was a literal three times he prayed it or if it was a figurative three times. But let me ask you. Can you think of anybody else in the Bible who prayed for something to go away three times? Think of our Savior in the garden, removed himself and pleaded with his own father and three times prayed a prayer about a cup. A cup because he had just, they had just passed the cup but a cup that he took from a literal sense um, for the Lord's Supper to a figurative sense, Lord, let this cup pass from me. Now, let me just say, because I know that every Sunday there are some visitors, some guests, and guests do what guests do. They come and check out a church, and they, you, maybe that's you today. Welcome. Sorry, it's a little toasty in here. We usually run the air better than we do. But you may be wondering, hey, do we pray for miracles around here? Do we believe that God can deliver and that you can pray a prayer and see God do a work? I would say yes. We, I've seen it in my life. We've seen it in the life of the church. There's not a need or prayer request we wouldn't bring before the Father in faith, believing. But I'm just telling you, if Paul prayed a prayer and Jesus prayed a prayer and God said no, maybe wait or later, the answers that we hate, then we have to share in that fellowship of suffering. Paul would say from the prison to the Philippians in chapter three. Everybody's got something and everybody wants that something to go away. God will use your strengths. You score a touchdown, you hit a home run, you point to heaven, you get involved, you discover your gift in the life of the body of Christ and you begin to use your gift for others. Man, God will use that. I hope you discover your gift and use it. He'll use your strengths and your gifting. He'll use your deepest dissatisfaction. But he'll use your weakness. But weaknesses make you feel weak, don't they? There's two words in this verse, these verses that Paul uses. He says, there was given to me, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. And later he says, but I boast. The NIV says, I delight in this gift. That's a little different, isn't it? Than feeling like a punch drunk fighter who's on the canvas, down for the count, not sure that you're gonna be able to get up. Can you think of, uh, if you take those words, given and delight, does that bring to mind anything this time of year? In a word? How about the simple word, gift? 
Now, I meant to wrap a gift, but I just bought some Krispy Kreme donuts because I didn't have time. <laughs> but in closing, I would say to you this morning that to me, it seems like this is the difference in those who live a resilient life and those who don't. I said last week, I'm telling you, the studies are out. They're, they're religious surveys and there are non-religious surveys, very reputable information out there that says the difference is not simply, well, that's a really bad problem. So-and-so got off the, off the canvas. They're able to fight the good fight because their problem wasn't as bad. Whereas so-and-so, that's a really bad thing that happened. They're not going to be able to get up off the canvas. Can I tell you, I know a few folks, they've suffered the deepest type of sufferings. They prayed the prayer 3,000 times. And God is saying, no, wait, later, not now, maybe. But they're still up. They're fighting. And maybe it's the difference between thinking that you're knocked out and life is just punching you and beating you up. And this thing actually is a gift. Could it be, could it be true that the thing that you got the persistent pain, the thing that you pleaded with the Lord on that is not going away could amplify the strength of God in your life. Now this morning, if I didn't have this thing, it's kind of invisible, but if I wasn't wearing it and Nick Smith wasn't in the back operating the computerized command and control center, just a handful of you down front would be able to hear all the words that I've said, certainly those that I've whispered. Without the amplification, those in the balcony and those in the back would not have heard these words today. And I believe, as I prayed for you this morning, I believe that that's what weakness can do for God's glory in your life. It can amplify and others, far more other people can hear the good news of the gospel if you and I, through pain, can embrace the strength of God's sustaining grace. Would you pray with me?